RunAsRadio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 106 with guest Alan Hurt, recorded Thursday, April 16th, 2009. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. All right, you're listening to Run As Radio. I am your host, Richard Campbell. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, everyone. Richard, how are you doing? I am well, sir. I am deep in the midst of speaker idol planning. Yes, you are. So TechEd US is coming up, and uh, I've been asked to do Speaker Idol again, which is good good fun for me. I know you're going to miss it. You're not coming to TechEd this year. Yeah, unfortunately, not able to make it this time, but uh, I will be there in spirit. That's good. I'm glad. I'm I'm just, you know, the way things go. Anyway, they, I mean, the challenge is getting all the right contestants in place. We've got our venue set up. We're going to be doing an evening finals on Thursday, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. So it's it's everything's a little bit different, and I'm going to mix up the heats. So I got two heats of IT Pro and two heats of Dev, so that we'll have two IT Pros and two Devs in the finals. And if people want to get involved, can they still do that? Yeah, I've still got a room for a couple more contestants. So if you're going to be at TechEd US in Los Angeles in May, and you've never spoken at TechEd before, you can do a hands-on lab, you can be a proctor, you can be uh, in the ASCII experts, but you've never had a breakout session. Fire me an email, info at runasradio.com, and we'll talk. There's also, uh, I think you still have a thing going on over at .NET Rocks for a contest. Yes. If you're not going to TechEd yet and you'd like to for free, go over to .NET Rocks.com and enter the TechEd US sweepstakes, and they're giving away airfare, hotel, and admission to TechEd US for one lucky winner. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, I don't know. You can't complain about that. All right, let's get right to our guest now. Alan Hurt has been using SQL Server in various guises since 1992. For the past 10 years, he has been consulting, training, developing content, speaking at events, and authoring books, white papers, and articles related to SQL Server architecture, high availability, administration, and more. His upcoming book, Pro SQL Server 2008 Failover Clustering by A-Press, is due to be published in the spring of 2009, which is now. Right about now. He has also authored various articles for SQL Server Magazine. Before forming Megahertz in 2007, he most recently worked for both Microsoft and Avanade, and still continues to work closely with Microsoft on various projects, including contributing to the recently published SQL Server 2008 Upgrade Technical Reference Guide. He can be contacted through his website at www.sqlha.com. Welcome, Alan. Hey, Alan. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming back on the show. We had a good time last time around. It's it's uh, awesome to be back digging in again. I think we did. Did we do high ability on two thousand five last time? I think we did um, actually consolidation and virtualization. If oh I'm right, that's yeah. That's right. I, yep. I think I opened the sh- the show off with uh, sequels error on VMs. Are you crazy? <laughs> yes, uh, you know it, it's funny how much that topic has heated up in the past year. Well, and I thought you painted a really coherent picture of there are SQL servers and there are SQL servers, and, and some make sense to be in VMs and some do not. Yeah, you know, and it's, that's still the case, although the story's gotten better. But, you know, that's still the case with that whole thing. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things go forward and virtualization just gets bigger and bigger. I, I totally agree. And I, I see the same sort of thing on the on the web farm front where 
Large-scale websites are still bare metal installations, but there's lots and lots of website configurations that run beautifully in VMs. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that people, what I find is, you know, and especially with high availability, they, you know, and things like and, uh, virtualization, they want black and white answers, and I'm always in that kind of shades of gray area. Um, you know, they, they want to nail me down, and they can't. Yeah, well, because the correct answer always is, it depends. Yes, but it's not the answer everyone likes. No, I don't think anybody actually likes that answer. It's just <laughs> the reality. But this is why we have consultants. <laughs> yeah, so I heard you guys talking about speaker idol. I guess I'm not qualified for that, huh? No, you you are, nah. sir, you are one of my favored judges. I am hoping oh, well, thank you. I can uh, tap you, certainly for the IT uh, days, to uh, to be a judge. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun last year, actually. And I'll just say to anybody who's thinking of doing it, it's not a really big pressure situation, so don't feel like, you know, you're going to get all nervous. Just go up there, be yourself, and that's how you win. Yeah, it's five minutes, and the guys who have just, uh, you know, been out there and, and, and come up with a great demonstration, something that's very, a good message in five minutes, which I think is the hardest part, but also just gotten over all the stuff and, and focused on the message, do extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd say that's 100% accurate. I don't know if you ask if you ask the people that are up there they uh, that have done it before. I don't know if they'll tell you that it's not that hard. Yeah, I never had anyone come off and say that was easy. They've always come down. <laughs> I, I funny we threw a couple of experienced speakers up there one time. They came down and went that is way harder than doing a regular session. Right. What I think it's harder, and I, I've actually had to do it recently. You know, of course we're supposed to be talking about other stuff, but you know, just to the people out there who are speaking. You kind of have to think about how long you have and your number of slides. That's probably three quarters of your battle. Yeah, don't because overdo if you're, it. If you're an expert in your field, you know you can probably talk about it till the cows come home. I know I can talk about things like clustering all day, probably without slides. But right. the reality is that you need to kind of rein yourself in and just kind of focus in, make sure that you, you know, don't put 14 slides for five minutes. You know, that's not going to work. Yeah, you just need to maybe put a couple of slides and maybe some demo and just have a good beginning, middle, and end, and be done with it. And it's, yeah, I agree, it's not as easy as it sounds, but if you get over that hump, that's probably at least half of the quarters of your battle. Absolutely. I, I got a sense one day I got to do an all-stars and take pro speakers and say, okay, you make a five-minute presentation. <laughs> I'd probably fail. Pro- <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> a good good example on my new book. Um, we kind of had uh, the, and I would say, quote-unquote, the conversation when I started to kind of bust through my page count. Yeah. They weren't the happiest with me for a little while, but we got that under control. Yeah. But yeah, isn't it funny how you start off going, how the heck am I going to get through 600 or 800 pages? And then the next thing you know, you're you're three quarters of the way through the chapters and you've blown the page count. And now what? It's not, I can tell you from experience, if you're ever looking to write a book, really work with your publisher on page count and try and stick to it. Yeah. <laughs> it matters. <laughs> Yeah, because they base things like the price of the book on things like that. Yeah. So let's talk a little clustering, because I think that was the intent of this show. And I and I wouldn't yeah. mind tying the virtualization into this, because whenever I think about a clustered SQL server, I always think of bare metal installation. I can't imagine doing virtualization and, and failover like that. Well, the good slash bad thing is that Microsoft won't support you if you throw your cluster nodes as a virtual, so it's kind of a done topic. I oh. mean, it, it's... I mean, you, does it work? Yeah, because, I mean, I do it for test environments all the time. Right. But in production, it's a big no-no right now. So, so uh, the the official line is unsupported configuration. Absolutely. 
<laughs> I mean, cause, but what gets odd is, you know, everything in the cluster, because it's a cluster, is virtualized, and people sort of kind of mesh the virtualization with the virtual SQL servers that are essentially created during clustering. And that's where, where I think it gets confusing. And maybe we're jumping in a little high level here. Why don't we just run down the fundamentals of what it is to cluster SQL Server together? Sure. So basically, you've got uh, a number of servers, two or greater. Um, most people these days are doing three or four. Those servers are called nodes. Right. Those nodes are then clustered together um, via Windows. So it, in Windows Server 2003 earlier, the Windows-level clustering was called for availability because Network load balancing is also a clustering technology, right. but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a server cluster in 2003 and earlier, or just because they want to, you know, confuse you a little bit, they call the feature in Windows Server 2008 a failover cluster. Now, on top of that, you would then install SQL Server, which then gets clustered, and SQL Server's feature is also called, are you ready? A failover cluster. Wow. Oh, good. At least, at least they have the same name. That, that's an improvement. And are they the same thing? Well, yes and no, because then you need to really qualify which part you're talking about. Right. Are we talking about the Windows failover cluster or the SQL Server failover cluster? Exactly. And because it's SQL Server, there's a requirement. Um, and again, I'm kind of summing this up really quickly, but there's a requirement for some shared disk because while it's not when you in, all right, so let me take a, actually another half a step back. One of the most common misconceptions about clustering is that it's a load balance solution. It is not. It's purely available. So once you install and cluster SQL Server, which is actually done at install time, it's not something you can do later. It, the one of the nodes will then what's known as own those resources associated with SQL Server, and only one node can do that at a time. Right. So, well, but underneath, there's what's called a, a shared disk, um, and it's a shared nothing approach, which means that only one node can own it at a time, but should a problem occur on that node, things will fail over to one of the other nodes, start up, and go from there. So that's essentially how clustering works. Um, you know, it's, most people for years have been doing two-node clusters. With Windows Server 2003, I've been starting and 2008, I'm starting to see finally a lot more four-node clusters, which makes things like consolidation much easier. Um, but depending on the version of the operating system you have and what edition of SQL Server you're using, anywhere from two to sixteen nodes can be in your cluster. All right, and and the key thing here is having that that disks and uh, I presume an array, a disk array, external to the computer, because that machine has to be able to die, but the drives live on, and another node is able to take take over on those drives. Absolutely, you know, and and that's generally SAN, or it, I'm seeing a lot of iSCSI these days, right? Um, but it's not NAS. <laughs> Yeah, it's not you sure. don't you don't want a file access protocol there. It, <laughs> even that yeah, even though iSCSI is technically more pure networking, that's well, it is what it is. Yeah, but I mean most of the time when I see an iSCSI configuration, the 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 SQL servers are plugged directly into it via ethernet. They it is it, there is sometimes switches involved, but they're isolated from the rest of the network. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's literally just um, y- y- the the one big word of advice I'll talk to anyone who's not maybe not necessarily the most storage savvy. Really work closely with your storage admins or storage engineers or whoever they are in your company because they're kind of going to be the lifeline of virtually any SQL Server deployment you do, but especially clustering. And, and yeah, the, the, the weak link for SQL Server, where you feel the pain the first, is storage. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't disagree with that, and that, that goes for any cluster or standalone. And that's a whole separate topic, which <laughs> I'm not going down that rap chat today. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Maybe a quick, maybe just a quick segue for the SAN administrator that might be listening. What what would you say is the number one thing they need to be aware of? Well, it's actually Windows too. So the first thing that you need to do at a, at a low storage level is make sure that you're doing the right um, zoning and masking, so that only the cluster nodes can see whatever LUNs are going to be presented to Windows. Okay. Then once all that's done and everything's presented up, you the Windows administrator can then take those LUNs. Uh, format them. Now, remember to format them with a 64K block size because that's what SQL Server likes. And if your SAN requires it, do sector alignment because, and that's done actually before you format because if you don't do that, you could have a 2 to 1 ratio from physical IOs to logical IOs. Now, Windows Server 2008 does compensate for that, but if you do know your SAN's offset, you can also manually set that. Now, one thing to note here is actually with Windows Server 2008, adding storage is actually quite a bit different than in previous times. So for anyone familiar with previous versions of Windows clustering, and I mean either a server cluster or uh, what's now known as failover clustering, um, you basically had to power up one of the nodes, get all the storage added, power that down, add it to the other node. You know, It was kind of a tedious process, had some downtime associated, especially if you wanted to add a disk later. Right. Well, now in Windows Server 2008, what you can do is make sure that you're properly zoned and masked and that you can basically see the storage on all the nodes in computer management. And then on one of the nodes, you have to format the drives. That's it. Um, it's gotten a lot simpler. And in fact, for those who don't know, Failover clustering, the Windows feature, was completely rewritten with Windows Server 2008, and I must say for the better. Now, I mean, rewritten, but it's still, I mean, a guy who knows his way around 2005 is not going to be totally lost in 2008. No, they won't be totally lost, but some of the mechanics have changed, and, and for example, you're not using cluster administrator anymore, you're using failover cluster, right. failover clustering management, um, and with R2 version of uh, Windows Server 2008, which is coming out, uh, I think later this year, early next year, Microsoft hasn't given an official date. That um, also supports PowerShell and is eventually going to replace the command line cluster.exe for a lot of those types of commands, the command line stuff. And, yeah, and that's a good thing. Uh, yes, and you know, I'm not a programming guy, but I could tell you that the R2 PowerShell stuff for clustering is very cool. Yeah, it just uh, opens the door to it's it's super scripting. It makes a lot more sense. The uh, capabilities are incredible. It's really a limited creativity. But I also think that the big thing that making PowerShell so compelling is that Microsoft's using it for their products. You know, it's not going to be long before you see any UI to administer a Microsoft product is in the end making PowerShell calls. So the symmetry of of capability in PowerShell to the UI is perfect. 
Oh, absolutely. And it, and actually with R2 and Windows Server 2008 and all the clustering PowerShell stuff, it's more of a one-to-one parity with what's in the GUI, right. more so than what was from the command line cluster.exe. So that's another big plus. Like, for example, um, one r- really new thing that everybody should be aware about is, so one of the biggest pain points from a, a Windows side of the house is, prior to Windows Server 2008, um, if you didn't know, you had your hardware had to be part of a essentially a certified configuration by right. Microsoft, and that caused a lot of shall we say pain in most environments because they just wanted to buy a couple pieces of hardware, cluster them up, and be done with it. But then they would call support and say, "Oh, well, is your cluster in the um, Windows Server catalog as a cluster configuration?" And then they look, and if it wasn't there, then lots of pain ensues. Right. Well. They've kind of changed all that in Windows Server 2008, where there's just this new uh, validation. Essentially, it's just a wizard. And that's actually also in PowerShell. It's not in cluster.exe command line. But essentially what it does is runs a bunch of checks and see if the nodes uh, or the servers that you want to use as nodes are viable for a cluster. And as long as the nodes pass the checks, you can cluster it. You know, now, having said that, I don't recommend you go buying five vendors' worth of server hardware and clustering it up. You should still try and stick to apples to apples where possible. But no longer are you kind of bound by all, a lot of the old stuff, which is actually really nice because it gives you more insight into how your servers are working, and it'll, it will detect some problems, and in some cases it will recommend hot fixes or... You know, one of the biggest problems we talked about earlier was storage. If you have some storage connectivity issues, it'll detect them up front instead of then clustering Windows, putting SQL on it, and then trying to figure out where your problems are later when things start to happen. Sure. See, I mean, isn't the right way to go for folks who are new to this stuff to just go to one of the major vendors and buy a complete solution, storage and machines? Yeah, I mean, very few vendors, there are only two vendors really I can think of that probably have whole solutions. One would be Dell, um, who has their own storage, and the other probably would be HP. Right. But the problem is, is a lot of people already have, actually IBM, they're on there too. Um, but the problem is, is in a lot of customers, they may say want Dell servers, but they may prefer an IBM Shark for a SAN, or they like pure EMC and not Dell's rebranded EMC. Right. So... You know, while in a, in a perfect world, everybody would go to one hardware vendor, which is their preferred one, and get everything, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, the reality is you have gear already in place, and you want to use what you've got, especially when it comes to stuff like SANS. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's part of the whole new world out there is that nobody's got tons of budget, so you're not rolling out in a new SAN for every SQL solution anymore. You know, the, the heyday of uh, big spending is gone, I think. Where is the sort of compare and contrast? This is the, we're talking about the Cadillac solution here with, with clustering, right? This is the sort of most expensive way to go, but it gives you the maximum uptime, say, compared to database mirroring or even log shipping? Well, I mean, I, I would kind of scale back the Cadillac comment because really it's not that expensive to be dead honest with you. You don't need to go buy a top-shelf SAN to do this. Um, you know, as long as it's perf- the, the storage is performing for you and, you know, Buying a couple nodes is just buying a couple servers, and then right. if you, so really the solution isn't that expensive in the grand scheme of things. Now, where it can get expensive is like the redundancy needed, say, in the fabric for the sands, 
it, you know, in the switches and the networking so that you actually have true redundancy. So that, for example, you're not plugging both nodes into the same network switch. Right. So if the network switch goes down, your entire cluster goes down. Right. Kind of defeats the purpose of, of deploying a cluster. Same thing with UPSs. I've had a UPS fail and take the whole cluster down. Oh, yeah. The, 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 you, could, you could insert any number of things that can go wrong in this scenario that you don't take into account. But, but really, the biggest difference between failover clustering and any of the other SQL Server availability technologies is that SQL Server failover clustering is instance-level protection, which means that when it fails over, everything you had in it, logins, databases, whatever, fails over to the other node. There's pretty much nothing you have to do except maybe worry about how to reconnect to the instance after it comes back up. Right. With anything else like database mirroring, log shipping, um, that's database-level protection. So anything that you need to do, um, whether the technology can switch to a standby server automatically or, or you do it manually, you now need to worry about things like logins, jobs, everything that sits outside the database. And then chances are you're going to have, uh, well, in most cases, some sort of data loss. Right. Um, now, maybe not if, say, if you're doing synchronous mirroring and, you know, and you've got the, all the commits going, but the reality is, is that with failover clustering, you're consistent to the point of failover. Now, what do I mean by that? When you fail over to the other node, it, it goes through a stop and a start of re- SQL Server. So just as you would on a standalone server, when SQL Server starts up, it's going to go through the recovery process. Right. So it's going to go through all the transaction logs, and it's going to roll back transactions that are incomplete. It's going to roll forward things that are complete but may- maybe haven't been written to the actual data, but it's been written to the log. Right. And that process is really what's going to take the longest in terms of you getting up and running. And how because long is the- longest? Well, again, it depends. Like, for example, if you have the people who've never backed up their transaction log, go get lunch. Yeah, see ya. <laughs> if you're maintaining your transaction logs, it shouldn't re- it should be shouldn't be more than a couple minutes. Right. And remember that starting, I think it was with SQL Server 2005, they put the fast recovery stuff in. Mm-hmm. So you could be essentially partially up and and using while still applying the rest of your transactions. Um, but but the one thing to remember here is that SQL Server considers itself up when the system databases are up. Right. But but you consider yourself up when you can actually use your user database. Yeah, when the application's running. Exactly. So so I want to make that distinction very clear is that you need to measure how long it takes for you. And the honestly, the only way to test this is to throw your actual load at your system prior to going into production and then doing a failover test and seeing how long it takes. Right. And and also seeing how the app behaves. I think one of the messages that gets missed for the IT side is this recognition that the software that your company writes has to tolerate the failover process. It takes time, and transactions and, and applications will fail unless they know that there's a window there where I have to suck it down, so to speak, retry transactions or queue stuff up until the, the server is ready to serve again. Oh, absolutely, and th- that's one of the biggest issues I've seen going back 10 years from when I wrote the first uh, SQL Server 2000 clustering white paper is that people don't understand that when you go through this stop and the start, your connections get dropped. Yeah. And if you don't code your application to be cl- fully cluster aware or at least put some sort of basic retry logic in there, yeah. mm-hmm. um, 
you know, that sucker's never coming back. I mean, I, I always like to kind of tell the story of um, I was when I was still at Microsoft, I was talking to a particular customer, and they were saying um, that, you know, our cluster failed over, our SQL server failed over like it should, but unfortunately, our application didn't reconnect. I was like, okay, right. well, you know, did you code it to the cluster, you know, to the platform's SDK? And they said, no. Come to find out, they were using a persistent ODBC connection. Right. So SQL Server failed over, but the ODBC connection still connected to God knows what. Yeah, well, right. so, they had to re- so they had to reset the ODBC connection. Yeah, I, you, people, you know, the old school CRUD app where when I start the app, I make a connection to the database and I keep it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, I'm not purely an app dev guy. I mean, for years I did QA, so I understand a software dev very well. But I always thought, I was just kind of chuckled to myself that, you know, I've been in this industry, it seems like forever, and I still see the same stuff now. It never changes. No. Right. That's a pretty, I've seen that problem several times too with the, just the failing to actually check to make sure that the connection is still valid and, and renewing it if you need to. Well, and actually, I think this is, we talked about this on, uh, I think, um, uh, .NET Rocks, uh, Sure. Uh, a, a while back where we talked about applications and high availability because the same mistakes are made for the other technologies too. Um, and actually, it's almost worse when you're doing the database level ones because if applications can't tolerate, say, a name change, right. which clustering, which you don't have to worry about with clustering at least, um, then you're really hosed. So we've talked a bit about the app dev side of how uh, clustering behaves. I think one of the interesting things, having been the IT guy dealing with a cluster server, is the sort of chill you get when you get notified that you failed over. Well, and, and I think again, that's an, another misconception. That kind of that's the whole point of clustering is that you had a problem, something failed over. Now go investigate what the problem was. Right. But as long as you've actually done proper things like oh I don't know capacity planning, yeah. um. Things should be up and running on the other node, and your application should be connected, and you really just don't have to worry about it. That's the whole point of clustering. Um, I, 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 but although, to some degree, I do, do think you're right in the sense that I get these, like, I've talked to customers who get really almost, like, manic about, oh, my God, it fell over. What do I do? Right. Don't worry about it. It's up and running. Just figure out what your problem is on the other node, solve it. And, again, as long as you have the right capacity... And this is what where I think people get tripped up is they want to move the resources back to the original node. But if things are up and running, don't cause another interruption. You know, maybe right. if you have a scheduled maintenance window, you can do that if you really want to. But leave it there. You know, be done with it. And then if it fails over on its own, which you hope doesn't happen, or, you know, again, you have a maintenance window and just for your own peace of mind want to move it back, do that. I mean... You know, because this, I got to give you a good, for example, a couple years ago, um, when I was still at Avanon, a uh, customer, we were moving their data center. Uh, we put new clusters in for them. They didn't have any high availability before. And lo and behold, uh, one night after we migrated things over, they had, they had a failover. And everybody got into panic. But then I said to them, guys, you're up and running now, right? You know, yeah. things are copacetic. They're like, yeah. I was like, well, then clustering did its job. 
Right. And they kind of calmed down after that because they realized kind of then what it was for. Well, and, and the whole point here is these servers are symmetrical, so it makes no difference which one you're running on. They should be the same. Well, absolutely, and that's kind of why I get back to everything should still be apples to apples. Now, in some cases, like on the failover node, sometimes what people will do kind of either a plus one or a plus two where they'll have dedicated failover nodes just so they won't impact potentially the performance of another instance if you've got multiple instances going on. And in those cases, people might put maybe slightly higher processor or memory, but that's really the only variations I see. You know, generally, it's all the same all around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what people get really concerned about is this idea of now I'm down to one server. Sure, I'm up, but whatever killed the first server might kill the second one, and and I got nothing left. Is that why we end up with three and four node clusters, just so that we know we still have another server to go if that one goes down as well? Yeah, some of it's paranoia. Some some of it is actually performance. Because really, if you're doing three and four node clusters at this point, you're doing things like consolidation in multiple instances where, you know, people are now getting paranoid about um, performance after failover. So now you'll have the dedicated failover nodes so that, you know, it's not going to, two or three instances may not live on the same server, if ever. Right. You you know, now the only way you're really going to have, honestly, a cluster-wide outage is, let's say, if your data center blows up, the entire network goes down, or the SAN itself dies. Because those are really the three common touch points. If the nodes are separate, your storage is up and running, you know, you can have, say, an isolated network card failure on a node, which is a, just a hardware or an HBA failure for your disk, yeah. uh, which is a thing that connects to your disk, and things will fail over. But that, those are completely isolated. That's exactly what clustering is supposed to protect you against. So, and, and we haven't stated this outright, but the whole thing here is that even though you're clustered, only one server is serving a given database, period. You don't share anything here, but the other server can be running some other database. So they're both working. It's just that one it, one's handling one database, the other's handling another database. But when you have a failure, now both those databases are running against the same machine. And that's where you get into this whole performance redundancy issue. Well, well, let's, let's just bubble up a second. Let's, let's actually use the word instance there because I think database it might confuse people. Right. Um, because you're correct. And we did talk about it a little bit earlier where I said only one cl- node owns the cluster resources. All those resources essentially map to an instance. And as everybody hopefully knows, you can have multiple databases for an instance. So what, what most people are scared about, and this is more the application owner, this is the IT folks, is that after a failover when you've got even, let's say, two instances of SQL running on the same node, that the instances aren't going to starve each other for resources. Right. So, you know, there are things you can do to prevent that. For example, in SQL Server 2008, there's the resource governor. Now, that's a brand new feature. Yeah. Now, it's only instance-specific, so instance A's resource governor isn't going to know about instance B's. But what you can do is as long as you know your workload, and that's kind of the key thing there, is you need to actually know what's going on in your SQL Server. You can then kind of tune it so that your workload doesn't, you know, kind of squash anything else. And then at the Windows level, um, you can use Windows System Resource Manager, which is something you can add in. It's on the Windows Server 2003 and 2008 installation CDs. It's just a utility that basically used to constrain the processors for any given, say, instance to a percentage so that, for example, if things get really busy 
and you don't want, say, one SQL Server taking 80% of your processor utilization, right? you can make it so that they all don't compete. And it, when things are on under normal utilization, the pro, it really shouldn't kick in and constrain everything to the nth degree. It's really only for those really, really busy times that so that, yes, you may be re- running at reduced performance, but things aren't completely killed. Now, within SQL Server, that's where you would go to manage memory. And this is where people have had issues historically is, do I hard cap my memory? Do I set a hard capped minimum and let SQL fight all the instances fight it out on top? Or do I just leave everything dynamic and hope for the best? I would not go with option C there. Door C is kind of painful. Which is interesting because for a long time, Microsoft said, we understand better memory better than you do. Don't touch it. Well, that's still true. But the problem is, is you got to wait for it to, ju- to adjust. And that adjustment period can be kind of painful. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of the step up from that is you don't necessarily want to hard cap it. Because what, what right, let me give you a for example, a really simple one. You've got two nodes. Let's say they have eight gig of memory each. You've got two instances. Um, if you set no memory parameters in SQL, in a failover, it's going to fight it out. Um, if you set a minimum, SQL's going to expect that minimum to be there in the failover, and then it's going to fight out for that, but hopefully your other SQL server didn't go up and grab all the available memory. It's, a, it's an easier memory pressure situation. Okay. However, really the best thing to do, and again, this is a bone of contention with a lot of folks in IT because it, it creates a perception of wasted resources, is that if you want things to really, really work after failover, you would hard cap your inst- instance's memory. So, for example, on an 8-gig server, um, if it, two 8-gig nodes, if you've got two instances, you would, say, set them at... I don't know, three and a half gigs each max, and then in a failover, there's never going to be any contention. Right. But the problem is, in the separate when they're separated, you've got four and a half gigs sitting there doing nothing, and that irks people. Yeah. But, but then I, I sure. you go back to the message of what's more important to you: availability or performance. Yeah. And if and and if it's performance, go buy some more physical memory and throw it in there. Exactly. Right, or and and then the other side of this is this efficiency that we don't. The same reason we don't like having a machine just sitting there waiting for the others to fail and not doing anything. Well, and this is where multiple instances early on, when the instancing was in, introduced in SQL Server 2000, really didn't take up, and people had really horrible experiences with 2000 and clustering because they would want to load it up with up to 16, which is what was supported. Right, right, and. They'd try that, and then their failover experience would be, like, the worst thing imaginable. Yeah. And then you kind of have to explain, well, you know, there's a lot of other factors at play here. Um, now, the thing I'll, I'll put the caveat there for memory is you need to figure out how much your OS needs as well, and don't assume it's just a gig of memory. Yes. Because the more processes, the more things you have going on, you're going to need more than a gig of memory for the OS. And, again, this is all goes back to pre-production testing. Actually getting a feel for what the OS is going to grab. Do you see OSs now grabbing 2 gigs, or is it 1.5? Like, where is that sort of sweet spot? I'm starting to see it, especially, for example, like, if you've got large amounts of memory and you've got lots of stuff running on your servers, because it's not that uncommon anymore to see 32 and 64 gig boxes. Yeah. So those OSs might want 2, 3, 4 gig of memory just for the OS to, to manage its stuff. 
So, again, that's going to be dependent on you knowing what's going on in your server. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, the old adage was, you know, reserve one gig for the OS and don't worry about it. Uh, it's If you do that now, you might find yourself in a world of hurt later. Are you feeling like it's a percentage of the total memory of the system that should be saved? I haven't seen it boiled down to that, but you know, I've not, I haven't seen a case where, for example, it's taken up ten gig of memory. Right. Um, but I'm not saying that's not impossible either. If you've got some Mondo 128 gigabyte super consolidation server, you know. Um, but you know, I'm seeing it generally somewhere anywhere between one and four gig is pretty normal. And if I got a 64-gig machine, I don't think I'd hesitate all that much to allocate 4 gigs out to the OS. Yeah, if you do, then I, I'd say you're being really stingy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and foolishly stingy, because at the time when you're going to need it the most, you, you're going you're gonna to suffer. Exactly. Well, absolutely. You, you know, and it, it's just like any other situation. If you're going to throw multiple instances onto a standalone server, you got to plan this stuff anyway. It's the same planning stuff you're doing. It's just complicated by failover. Right. Yeah, failover does make it harder, but I think there's there's sort of axiomatic messages like it's yes, you're always up, but always is a relative concept. You've got to tolerate the recovery time. Those those sorts of you know don't believe the panaceas. Yeah, and I will say clustering's not for everyone. Right. I mean, people want to look at it, and I see it recommended all the time. But it's I would say you know if you can't drive stick, why are you buying a Ferrari? Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're going to crash the $200,000 car into a tree. Yeah. If you can't, if, if the solution doesn't work for you, you don't understand it, you can't administer it, um, you don't have the expertise in-house, don't deploy it. Even if on paper it's the, it looks like it's a perfect match, don't do it. Half the time when I'm called in to look at customer configurations and they're screwed up, it's because people didn't know what they were doing up front. Right. And they got the planning aspect wrong, and it's really hard to fix afterwards once it's in production. Sure. So is the other side of this the practice, practice, practice bit? If you haven't done a failover, you don't know it's going to work? Yeah, absolutely. You need sort of what we talked about before with load and, you know, how long it's actually going to take to get up and running. Right. You know, you kind of need to know how long it's going to take to do your recovery after a failover. And you want to know what the behavior is of your application after a failover or during a failover. You know, because the last thing that your end users want to see is an ugly error message. Yeah. Because then, then your help desk is going to get inundated with calls. Well, we don't know what's going wrong. You know, and, sure. and especially if it happens, let's say, midday on a Wednesday during the week. You know, that's, you know, great that you're up and running, but the user community is now in a panic. Yes. And, and it's worse if it's Saturday afternoon and you've got a busy weekend going on. Yeah, exactly. You're doing a bunch of other upgrades, and now you've got to take time away from that to deal with other stuff yeah it, it, it's yeah if you haven't tested it and you haven't proven that it works then you're not you, you haven't done your whole yeah, job yet. yeah now one thing i also want to make sure we get in here is that um one thing that people may or may not like it's it's um arguably the biggest change to sql server 2008 failover clustering is the installation so are you guys familiar with it have you guys played with it no i haven't so for better or for worse uh, and again, I'll, I'll leave that for people to form their own opinions. I've got my opinion um, at this point, although it's really not that that bad at all. But I just want to make people aware. So if you're used to installing a, a clustered instance of SQL prior to 2008, you'll know that whether you're patching it or installing a new one or whatever it is you were doing, you can all the nodes were configured at once. 
Right. And on the odd occasion that things didn't work, they really didn't work. And it was probably some remote execution on another node that you mm. now need to go figure out why that was and failed. And it made the installation process painful every now and then. Uh, not all the time. I mean, I more often than not had success, but, you know... Th- most of the things that went wrong are pretty common to, you know, you couldn't really connect to the other node to begin with, so right. it failed. But it, where, where people felt the pain a lot more usually was around, like, say, failed service pack setups, things like that. So what they've done now is kind of take an approach to let's make sure it works and works 100% of the time. So you're installing each node individually, and not only each node individually, but each instance individually. So let's say you've got a four-node, five-instance SQL Server 2008 failover cluster. You will be doing 20 different installation processes. Now, let let me take a half step back. It's not as bad as it sounds because they're really only the five main SQL servers. Those are essentially... Um, the initial installations, then everything else is an add node operation, which is pretty quick. So I don't want to give the impression that, you know, you're going to have 20 long, drawn-out, horrible installs. That's not the case. Okay. So they've gone for an approach that improves the setup experience where probably your rate of failure is going to go close to zero, but there's just a lot more of it to do. So, I mean, for the most part, it sounds like improvements. It's just different steps. Uh, the, you know, we talked about a guy who's already familiar with clustering is going to have no trouble here, but building from scratch 2008, be prepared for some significant changes. Well, I would actually say it's the other way around. For people who haven't done clusters before, it'll probably be an easier change. Right, yeah. Like I tell you, I, the first time I saw the install, I kind of was like, huh? What is this? <laughs> because you're so used to it working the other way. Yeah that it it takes a while to wrap your head around what they did. Now, um, that I, I will be honest here and say I didn't love it when it first was introduced in, into the RCs. I was not a huge fan. I, 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 I'm okay with it now, actually. I've made my piece. Um, uh, and it's actually <laughs> really fairly good. I mean, it, it, it works very well. It's just really, like I said, if you've been doing it for years, n- knowing how it's different. Now, I will say, for for that aspect of it, it's probably the most difficult thing, just the sheer number of installs and what you need to do. Right. Now, there's one where I'd say, if you're doing especially that many instances, script your installs. Don't even bother with right. a GUI. Sure. Um, see, you SQL Server is set up now, as it did in 2005, has a full interface whether you're using just command line switches or you create any file to do it whatever your perfect poison is do that um there's also something called cluster preparation uh which isn't is an okay feature like for essentially you kind of go through the install but then you have where it's kind of sitting there dormant and then you run one final thing and it activates it all um i haven't seen too many usage scenarios for that i would just probably script a normal install right and, and kick that out. Um, but there are some improvements. Now, again, for those familiar with the old setup, you'll know that let's say you wanted to um, have a disk associated with SQL Server, or in this case, you want to have multiple disks associated with a particular SQL Server instance. And a, a quick digression here, uh, SQL Server 2008 still requires drive letters. 
right. uh, for your disk. Now, you can put mount mm-hmm. points under the drive letters, but it still requires at least one drive letter for that installation. All right. Having said that, prior to SQL Server 2008, you could only install or select one drive per SQL Server instance, and then after the fact, you'd have to go into Cluster Administrator, or in, in this case, in the case of 2008, um, failover cluster management, and add the drive in later. And it was just kind of a whole pain because it, the drive for SQL Server to use it needs to be what's known as a dependency. Well, what's really nice about 2008, and after 10 years of probably me, you know, jumping up and down and standing on my head and spitting wooden nickels, and I don't think it was just me, but. Yeah, but it's a great visualization there. <laughs> You know, I'd almost pay to see that. <laughs> you know, me standing up there at Tech Ed on my head, spitting wood nickels. Um, <laughs> but they've added in the ability to select multiple drives as long as they're available at installation time during the setup process, which is really, really nice. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Except for... Um, yeah, so there are lots of little things like that they added to setup, which are subtle, and if you haven't used it for a long time, probably won't appreciate. But that was even last year when I first saw the new install, and I went, huh? When I saw that they added the multiple disk thing, I was like, hallelujah, finally. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Alan, I think we're we're just about out of time here. Any final uh, words to call out to the listeners? Um, my book, uh, uh, you introduced it in spring. It should probably be out a little after spring. We're looking at June. Okay. But not that not that much longer after spring. It's spring-ish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know how this thing goes. Oh, yeah. Uh. Um, the failover clustering isn't evil. It's not bad. It, you know, it's not rack. It's not a, a load balance solution. But everybody, everything has pluses and minuses. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just really sit down and understand what you're deploying and understand your reasons for deploying things. Right. And then your installations will go much smoother. Excellent. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for inviting me, guys. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 